great to be back with you all, and I want to first thank Rick for preaching for me last week. Rick, I didn't know if you wanted to do a series or anything like that before I get started. Did you have a 12-part series or anything like that in, in mind? But I do, I'm thankful for the elders uh, covering, and we're truly blessed here at the church to have a godly leadership that loves the Lord and serves, and so... And I also want to thank you all for your prayers for Evie and I as we were away. This city slicker had a wonderful time in the woods. You should have seen me there in the cabin working with Evie, kind of encouraging her with the campfire because she camped all her life. Me, on the other hand, I had my iPad and I had, you know, my Wi-Fi and I was watching the ball game. And the Mets looked good last week. They don't look so good this weekend and, and whatnot. But we had a great time. But, you know, you need to keep praying. Our family is a mess. I thought I would be absolutely, totally refreshed, relaxed, having a lot of sleep, all of that kind of stuff. This time change doesn't sit well with my dogs. I mean, I went to bed last night thinking, this is great. I'm getting an hour extra sleep. And then my little black pug, Hobbs, got up at 4 in the morning. Now, I'm an early riser, but I'm not 4 in the morning early riser. So we're a mess. We still need your prayers. We're grateful for your prayers. It's good to be back with you. And we've been studying the book of Ephesians for two years now. i got to hand it to you for your patience. You have done great. But the month of November, we're finishing it up. We're completing it. We're in the last chapter of the book of Ephesians. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles, or the word is going to be up here on the on the wall, we're going to be looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. So let's turn our hearts to listen with a soft heart and a responsive heart to the very word of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And friends, this is God's word. Let's review just for a quick minute what the book of Ephesians is all about. Paul's writing this letter to the congregation at Ephesus. He's writing from prison, so it's one of his prison letters, and it's basically a manual of spiritual formation or discipleship. And of a central theme in the letter is the theme of the church. Specifically, the church as God's new society, his new humanity, his new civilization, and the fact that God is building a new society. And he wants that new society to reflect and to mirror his glory, to display his glory back into the world. So back earlier in chapter 3, we read this. Paul wrote to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And the very next words are, so that. 
indicating everything. He's so he's saying to me, the least of all the saints, I've been given this grace to preach the gospel, the unsearchable riches, to, and here's why. In other words, here's what God is doing in the world. So that through the church, that's you and I, folks, so let's apply this right off the bat. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, God is building a new society, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multinational people made up of Jews and Gentiles coming together, people who in the world might have nothing in common, but who come together and are what we could call a contrast society. In other words, basically, in contrast to everything that's in the world and everything that what, for example, in church history, the Bishop of Hippo, St. Augustine, called the city of man, he said, we are to be a contrast society so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, how wise do you think God is? And how much variety is there to the wisdom of God? God is saying, I want that wisdom to be made visible, to be revealed, to be manifest, to be clear, to be made known through us, through the church, through how we, as Andrew read, love God, through how we love each other, through how we love our neighbor, through how in all of our relationships we mirror the glory of God. Which brings us to the end of the letter. Because this sounds, you read this and at first glance, you're, wow, that's radical, that's revolutionary. And it is. But you get to the end of the letter and look how Paul explains for this to be displayed. He wants it displayed in our ordinary, everyday, daily relationships. At home, chapter 5, husbands and wives. Chapter 6, children and parents, fathers, how you lead, how you treat how you deal with, how you disciple, how you shepherd, how you are the pastor of the church that is called your home. Workers and bosses, how you reflect the glory of God by living out, by doing work, not only to excellence, but by revealing faith, hope, and love. We make the invisible vis kingdom visible. So in other words, in all of these relationships, and this morning we're focusing on the home, parents and children. But in all these relationships, what God is showing us is that he has a new society, and in that new society there is a divine order. There's a divine order to things, and no matter what your category, you have obligations, you have responsibilities. One commentator, his name's Peter O'Brien, he said, this recognition of the God-given order and structure reveals a surrender to the Spirit's work. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 18, he gave the command, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. One of the practical ways we live a Spirit-filled life is honoring and embracing our calling in life. So that no matter where you're called and what category, what type of relationship, you live the Spirit-filled life by embracing that calling. And O'Brien says this recognition of the God-given order and structure reveals a surrender to the Spirit's work in, in your life, transforming you into the image of Christ and demonstrates that you understand what the Lord's will is. The church is God's new society. And God is a God of relationship, and he's a God of order. And the Holy Spirit wants you to embrace your calling within 
his new society, whatever that calling is. So how do you embrace your calling? This text teaches us there are three ways. Three things that we need to recognize, acknowledge, and grow in if we're going to embrace our calling, no matter what our station is in life. First, you must submit to that order. And second, you must trust that order. And third, you must learn to live in the grace of the divine order. Submit to the divine order, trust the divine order, and live in the grace of the divine order. First, submit to the divine order. Verse 1 begins very simply. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I have a confession to make. I really struggled with this sermon this week. I was in the office Friday after studying, looking at things, and I was in and I saw Andrew, and Andrew asks me, he says, Jeff, how's your week been? And I'm really struggling with this sermon. I said, these kind of texts are the hardest texts for me, the ones that are the most straightforward. Do this, do this, do this, do this. I'm kind of like, what more can I say? Children, obey your parents. There it is. Let's go have lunch. That's kind of how I was feeling come Friday afternoon. I was like, not much more I can say is, children, this is what it says. Um, fathers, uh, guess what? Don't abuse your children, you know? Don't provoke them to anger. It's pretty straightforward in terms of this. And I went home Friday night. I have the ball game on in the background, and I started reading. I'm kind of going, well, let me take a look at this, and I'm reading through different things. And I come upon a sermon Tim Keller preached on this 25, 26 years ago when the church he pastors, Redeemer Church, was first starting. And he preached on this, and he says, you know what? I was really struggling with this text. I went, oh, I f if Tim Keller's struggling, I feel really good right now. So I loved that. And then he said, I have this illustration that I want to share. And I read through it, and I went, this is the perfect illustration. And this illustration actually helped pull things together and genuinely challenged me in a great way. And it's from Grimm's Fairy Tales. Anybody ever hear of Grimm's Fairy Tales? Okay. It's so not a famous one. I had never heard it or read it before. But as Dr. Keller says, it's one that's very relevant to our subject this morning. It was about a little old man who, in his old age, had gotten very, very senile. He was confused about things. And at the dinner table, he was particularly messy. He was always dropping things, and he was always splattering things all over himself. He lived with his married son and his married son's family. So he lived with his married son and daughter-in-law, his wife, and their son. And the son's wife particularly hated the fact that this old man was so messy and so much of a nuisance. Over the months and over the years, she had turned her husband against his father in so many ways and had him actually convinced that his father really was a great nuisance. And his father was a tremendous bother and a tremendous burden to them. One day, he was particularly messy in the dining room. And his wife said, that does it. You're eating in the other room. She picked him up, and they went into the other room, and she sat him in the corner. She gave him the earthenware bowl. For weeks and weeks, this little old man sat in the corner with his eyes blinking, not really sure what was going on, very confused, isolated, away from everybody else, just eating his porridge. One day, he dropped the earthenware bowl and destroyed it. The daughter-in-law now was very furious. She came in, and she said, that does it. If you're going to eat like a pig, you might as well eat like a pig. She grabbed a trough out of the pigsty, for they lived on a farm, 
And she brought it in, she put it down in front of him, and she said, from now on, you can eat out of this. And that's how she served him. It was weeks later, the husband and the wife, they come, come into the house, the son and daughter-in-law, and they say, see their little, little boy carving something. They say to their son, son, what are you working on? The son looked up at them and said very proudly, I'm carving you and daddy a trough so that when I grow up and get old, I can feed you out of it. <laughs> the son and daughter-in-law looked at each other with horror in their eyes, and they said nothing. All they could do was weep. Suddenly, the adult son's memory began to come back, began to think and think, working overtime. What happened next was that the son and daughter-in-law walked on. They came in. They picked up the old man by the hand, led him very tenderly and very gently back into the dining room. They sat him down in the most comfortable chair at the head of the table and let him eat there and never, ever got angry at him again. Dr. Keller says, yes, that's a fairy tale, but a very good fairy tale. And it's, he says, the point is, is it sums up the fifth commandment that Paul bases this entire passage on. See, verse 1 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then verses 2 and 3, he grounds this in the very word of God. The law of God that is universal over everything. The order of God that brings order and structure into the universe. Dr. Keller says, a society that destroys the family destroys itself. If you eliminate honor in the family, you eliminate honor, period. The fifth commandment is what Paul bases his entire exhortation here. If we are going to live as a contrast society, you see the divine order revealed here. You see the word of God. The law of God is being universal over everything and being the basis for a stable society. Honor your father and mother. We are to submit to the divine order. But Paul goes on. Why are we to submit to the divine order? I mean, it's, it's enough, we could say, because God said so, and that would be true, but he gives us more. He wants us to trust his goodness. He wants us to trust the structure he has placed in the universe. He wants us to trust the divine order. I want you to think about two things here. First, why does Paul use the fifth commandment as a basis for his instructions here? He says in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Obviously, he is speaking about, and think about a couple of things here, first of all. Think about the fact that he would obviously expect children to be in worship, at least children who are old enough to be able to hear the word of God, respond to the word of God. This is a letter. Paul wrote the letter from prison. He obviously sent it with somebody to be read to the congregation, and he expected children to be there worshiping, hearing, responding in faithful obedience. And he says, children, obey, because children are the most, when they're especially when they're young, dependent, and they are to obey. And then he says, honor your father and mother, so that no matter what age you are, even as adult children, even when, because not all of us, have believing parents. You're not called to agree with everything your parents say. So it's not when you're an adult, a matter of obeying everything. But even if you don't listen to, you're leading your own family, you are still to honor. You are still to treat as important. You are still to treat as significant. And look at the importance of this command. When he says honor, why is Paul basing it on the fifth commandment? 
Scholars teach us that the Ten Commandments that this is based upon are basically consist of what they call two tables of the law, a first table and a second table. The first table, okay, and Jesus summed up the commands. How did he say was the summary of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The first table of the law, which is commandments one through four, basically show us how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love God by having him as your only God. What did Andrew read from Deuteronomy? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. In other words, you have no other gods. If anything else is on a par or more important than God, you are breaking that commandment. I may love sports. If sports becomes more important than God, I'm breaking that commandment. You're blessed with a good job. You're blessed with a good family. There are things you like, things that are wonderful gifts in your life. If they occupy more of your time, more of your resources, more of your money, more of your mind, more of your attention, more of your heart, you're breaking the first commandment. Those first four commandments show you how to love God. Having no idols, making his name holy, honoring, setting apart his name, respecting the Sabbath day. Commandments 5 through 10 is all about how to love your neighbor as yourself. And look at commandment 5. See, commandments 6 through 10 shows us how to love our, you know, love my neighbor by, like, not killing them, not having adultery with them, not stealing from them. But commandment 5, commentators teach us, is kind of a hinge commandment between the first four, the first table, and the second table. It's the hinge between loving God and loving neighbor. In other words, loving God in your home prepares you because what's the purpose of parenting? It is not so that you hold your children under your roof and under your thumb all your life. It's so that you grow them up, mature them, so that they live in the freedom to enable to go out and love God themselves. And so in other words, learning to love God in the home is preparatory to loving God in the world and being what? That contrast society. And then second, look at what Paul says in verse 1. When he says, children, obey your parents, he says simply, for this is right. In other words, this is right. It's the divine order. It's the way God made things. He put it into the structure of the universe. Again, listen to how Tim Keller explains this. He says, there is a moral structure in the universe, a moral order of things a right and a wrong, and a God who created us. When we listen to his word and we come under his authority and we say, yes, I believe what you say about me and about life, he says we experience the liberty of authority. Boy, is that countercultural, isn't it? The liberty of authority. And he gives the following illustration. He says if a bunch of people get together to play a game, no matter what the game is, basketball, baseball, football, a board game, whatever. You have to have rules. You have to have a ref. You have to have an umpire. Yes, you may scream at the TV and say, that umpire's blind as a bat, but you have to have a set of rules. You have to have a single person there that says, this is the rules of the game. If not, you have anarchy. You have everybody going, these are my rules, these are my rules, these are my you have to have, if you listen to the ref, there's at least a game, there's at least an order. Dr. Keller says, he says, 
Parents, he says, the first incarnation of that moral order in the universe that we experience, the first representative we have of that moral order in the universe is our parents. That moral order becomes a teaching authority. Our parents are the representative of God's moral order in your life. Now, verses 1 to 3 speak to the children and adult children in terms of that. Verse 4 speaks to the parents. Parents and fathers specifically, if you're the moral order, if you're the representatives of God's moral order in your child and more and more today in your grandchildren's life, how should you behave? How should you act? Look at verse 4. Do not provoke your children to anger. That's the negative side. But on the positive, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean practically? Again, one commentator put it, he says, effectively, the apostle is ruling out excessively severe discipline. Ruling that out because in the Roman society, in that society, a patriarchal society, excessive discipline by fathers was acceptable. Now, we're not ruling out the use of authority and we're not ruling out discipline. We're ruling out excessive discipline, severe discipline. He writes, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. He writes, behind this curbing of a father's authority is the clear recognition that children, while they are expected to obey their parents in the Lord, are persons in their own right who are not to be manipulated, who are not to be exploited, who are not to be crushed. Do you recognize how affirming of children this is and how countercultural that was? This is treating children as if they are valuable, worthwhile, equal in the sight of the Lord. And that our first aim, if you look at the positive side, raising them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, our first aim is their spiritual well-being. And if your first aim is their spiritual well-being, that includes their physical well-being, their psychological needs. Your aim, and this goes the same thing if you're a boss, if you're an employer, your first aim is the well-being. From the Jewish world Paul came out of, it'd be called the shalom, the wholeness, the wholehearted human flourishing in every dimension of those you are responsible to lead. God never compartmentalizes. He never says, take care of the physical and ignore the psychological and spiritual. And he never says, take care of the spiritual, ignore the others. He says, take care of wholeheartedly. Take care of holistically. So one, there is a divine order and we must submit to it, recognize it. Two, there is a divine order and we have to trust it. For this is right. But as we get on to the third point, I want to ask you a question. How are you going to obey this? How in the world? Are you feeling the weight of the demand of this? I hope you are. I'm hope, I hope you are feeling the utter force, the utter gravity, the utter, utter weightiness of this. For this is the very law of God. This is binding upon you. And you will be held accountable and responsible to this. So where do you get the power, let alone the motivation and the ability to actually do this. 
And this is where we have to recognize that there is a divine grace to the divine order. Do you understand the purpose of the law of God? We looked earlier at how Paul is using, he's basing this entire exposition on the fifth commandment and on the ten commandments. Now, friends, do we understand the purpose of the law? I'm so glad that this weekend is Reformation Day because this is one of the things we get out of our reformational theology. One of the things specifically out of Lutheran theology that we get is the recognition and the distinction between the law and the gospel. Theologians have often said there are three uses of the law. The first one we've gone over, that it's the basis for a stable society. But the second one is that the law was given purposely, intentionally by God to show you your utter helplessness before the law. To show you your utter inability. Best illustration I've ever heard on this, and I don't even remember who gave it, but I heard it years and years ago, is that the law of God is like a white glove. Anybody want me to come with a white glove and into your home this afternoon and say, let me dust and take a white I don't think any of us want, want that, do we? Well, the law of God is a white glove on your heart that is exposing, and it's meant to expose to your mind and to your conscience where you've broken the very law for the purpose of getting you to flee and run and drive you to the divine order of grace. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He said, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given, listen to this, if a law had been given, that could give life. So if honor your father and mother, if fathers don't provoke your children, if children obey your parents, if slaves obey your masters, if masters stop threatening your workers, if that could give life, righteousness would be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Friends, do you feel the utter helplessness you have before the very law of God? You need to feel your powerlessness and your helplessness to come up with the incentive, the motivation, the power, and the ability to obey even the least command of God so that you can recognize, receive, and actually learn to appropriate the grace of the divine order. And the grace of the divine order is that through Jesus Christ, you must have a perfect father. And God, as your heavenly father, is that perfect father. See, I want you to think about something. Why, and we all struggle with it, why do we struggle with living in the divine order? Why do we struggle with embracing our calling? Why, even as we get older, do we struggle with honoring our parents? Or why do we struggle with loving anybody? The answer is our struggle with grace. We need to understand the grace of the divine order. See, we need to understand you need a love greater, better, more complete, more perfect, a love that will never fail you, that is above anything else. You need to have a real Heavenly Father. Again, Dr. Keller put it this way. He says, you will never be able to love and honor your parents or anybody else for that matter unless you are free 
from your need for their approval. It says we all have a problem. We're all in bondage to the need for a verdict, a verdict of approval, a verdict of being good enough, a verdict of being okay. Dr. Keller writes, he says, the whole purpose, the Bible tells us here, of child raising is to bring them up and get them free from you. He says, physically, it's one thing to grow up, psychologically another, but spiritually, the only way to grow up, which is really what we're, we're aiming for, spiritual maturity. And spiritually, the only way to grow up, to really be free from your parents, is if you're looking beyond your parents to the love of your Heavenly Father. He says, because what we said earlier, if there's a structure in, placed into the universe and our parents really did represent God, it was natural that early on in our lives, our parents gave us meaning in life. Dr. Keller says, he goes, if our parents said, well done, good and faithful servant in whom I am well pleased, if that was the message we were hearing from them, if the message we were hearing from them was that you were worthwhile, you were okay, you were secure, your life had meaning. But he says, but what happens as you get older is some of us, maybe all of us to some degree, are still locked in. We're dependent on what others think of us. Even the master-slave relationship that Paul's talking about, he's talking about working unto the Lord and not as, what do he say, people pleasers, ice for the verdict of others. He says we're still needing others' approval, and the only way to be free is that if we have God as our Heavenly Father, and not simply believing in God, not simply knowing about God, but having God as your Heavenly Father. And what does it mean to know Him as your Father? Through Jesus Christ. Remember the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15? What does the son do? Basically says, Father, I wish you dead. You're alive, but give me, give me your stuff. I want the inheritance now. I'll take it now. And the father liquidates everything, gives him his half, gives him what's coming to him. The son takes it, squanders it in wild, reckless living. Then he decides to come back, decides to ask his father not to come back as a son, but to come back as a slave, to come back as a hired servant. But what happens? The father, and friends, this is your heavenly father. This is the love you need. This is the love you can't live without. Your, love, your father humiliates himself by hiking up his skirt, running, something a Jewish father in that day would never ever do because he was looking over the horizon. You were always on his heart. You weren't seeking him, but he was seeking you. He wasn't only seeking you, he was pursuing you. He was not only pursuing you, he was chasing and running after you. And when he finally saw you, what did he do? He embraces you and he kisses you. And Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this, says he kissed you over and over and over again. And he says, my son, my son, put on the best robe, the family ring. We're having a party. Call everybody. We're celebrating. And that is the divine verdict on any and all who are in Christ. And J.I. Packer says, there is a tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to you is utterly realistic based at every point on his prior knowledge. And how much does God know? Think about this. 
God's love is based at every point on prior knowledge of the very worst about you. So that no discovery can disillusion him. No discovery about yourself can disillusion him about you in the way you might so often be disillusioned about yourself. And no discovery can ever quench his determination to bless you. On the cross, God moved heaven and earth. You want to know the cost and the breadth? How did Paul put it in Ephesians 3? The breadth and the width, the height and the length of the love of God that surpasses knowledge. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us God like a lion and like a lamb, like we sung earlier. His furious determination to bless you. That's the divine verdict for all who are in Christ. And that's the only verdict that will allow you and enable you to move out in love. Fathers to children, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to their parents, adult children, honoring. Even if you don't see eye to eye, you are called to be free and independent, but you're still called to honor. doesn't mean do everything, they say. Because, and you're free to not do everything, they say, because you have the divine approval. The divine verdict is upon you. What is it that is controlling your heart today? Father, may our hearts be controlled and governed by your verdict upon us, your verdict of love, your verdict of approval. And as we come to the table now, I pray, Lord, that as you are determined to pour your blessings into us, even by way of giving us this sacrament, remind us of your love for us. We pray that you would show us and we would enter into, that we'd plunge our minds and our hearts deeper and deeper into your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite the elders.